Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hello and welcome to Off The Beaten Track Podcast. I'm your host, I'm Stu Whiffin. It's another week, therefore it's another episode. Today's episode, joining me today is journalist Greg Cockrum. So Greg has uh, been the editor of NME.com, has worked for the BBC, and he's currently one of the main players at Loud and Quiet magazine. So needless to say, Greg's got a hell of a lot of music chat in his back pocket, and uh, and we have a good rifle through it today. So before we get on with the podcast, just a big thanks to Scroobius Pip and everybody at the Distraction Pieces Network. Big shout out to www.podbiblemag.com, your one-stop shop for podcast recommendations. And thanks to 76 for producing this podcast. Okay, let's get straight on with things. Please enjoy Off The Beat and Track Podcast with Greg Cochran. I've got an announcement. Save Our Souls Clothing, www.sosclothing.co.uk. Why am I telling you this? Because they're our official sponsor. Yeah, that's right. Go and check them out because their clothing is off the scale. You're going to love it. So they've decided they want to be our sponsor, which is amazing. And what I have to do is I have to tell you about why they're amazing. So here's a little bit of blurb. So they've only been going a year. And they're based in Southend-on-Sea, just up the road from me. They put the company together based on a, a love of tattoos and alternative music. And they've worked with some of the greatest artists around the world to produce these items of clothing that are as unique as you lot. All of the designs are printed using biodegradable, sustainable and water-based inks. And in addition to that, they only print on garments made by members of Fairwear Foundation. I mean, come on, great clothing and a conscience. Since going live in April last year, they've seen their audience grow massively and are now selling orders all across the world. And they were recognised by Cosmopolitan magazine as one of the best sustainable clothing brands alongside names such as Stella McCartney. I mean, that's quite a first year, right? So, go and check them out because they've put a lot of love into supporting this podcast and I couldn't be happier. What else they've done is they've given you 15% off. So if you head over to www.sosclothing.co.uk, do a bit of shopping, see what you like, throw it in the basket, and then on the way out, put in the discount code BEAT15, B-E-A-T-1-5, and that'll save you 15% off. Amazing, right? www.sosclothing.co.uk. Official sponsors of Off The Beat and Track Podcast. 
Let's get back to that podcast. It's off the beat and track podcast on the Distraction Pieces Network. With me, Stu Whiffin. Okay, we are recording. We are at the WeWork building in Devonshire Square in London. And sitting opposite me today is editor, writer, candlestick maker, Greg Cochran. <laughs> candlesticks. I'm not known for my candlesticks, actually, but maybe that's my next venture. When I said writer, I'll just, I'll just automatically thought, well, that's going to rhyme. I'm going to throw that in the mix. So uh, stick it on your CV anyway. Yeah, why not? How are you? I'm well, thanks. Yeah, I'm good, thank you. How are you? I'm, I'm okay. So this is the first time we've, we've met. We've, we've spoke on the phone. Mm-hmm. Um, we both uh, work and, and, and own publications, mm-hmm. um, yours being loud and quiet. Uh, and, and obviously, um, I'm in Pod Bible. So we'll be chatting about that, and we'll be chatting about some of the other projects that you've you've done, and the, and the magazines that you've you've written for, and 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 there was quite a lot to get through. So before we do any of that, we need to do a proper introduction. So for track one, Greg, the song with the greatest ever intro. <laughs> I feel like I almost cheated on the first one here because I went for Beyonce, Crazy in Love. Right. And I suppose it doesn't have a traditional introduction because it just goes straight into the chorus and then yeah you know into the verse but my interpretation of greatest ever intro was greatest ever 10 20 seconds of a song right. i cannot hear that song without getting on my feet and it's just so gripping and, and it, it was released getting on like 20 years ago now and i just think it still sounds so fresh um, and I've just always loved it. I love hearing it at weddings. I love hearing it at home. I love hearing it in festival fields, wherever. It's just still amazing. I think it's one of the greatest pop songs ever written. One of the greatest intros that leads into one of the greatest pop songs ever written. And it's a sort of double barrel intro because obviously it starts with that huge brass. Mm. And, and I don't know where that's sampled from. And, uh, if it is sampled, I'm sure it is. I'm sure that's a, an, an old funk sample. But then once that's the kind of call of arms, and then when it drops out for the kind of uh, 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 yeah, yeah, just huge, and and it drops so low, but it's still got that groove mm. that the minute them horns come back in, it's just just euphoria. It, yeah, it, absolutely, it really is. And I don't know, have you ever seen Beyonce live? I haven't. Have you? Okay. Um, yeah, I have, but. I have not seen her in recent years, but she still tends to start the show by playing that. It yeah. opens the show. So linked into the idea of it being like the greatest ever song intro. I also think the Beyonce live experience is incredible. And she opens the show with it. And she played um, Coachella last year, which is in, I would say, like music criticism circles, gone down as one of the all-time great Coachella shows and it got filmed and they turned it into a documentary called Homecoming which is on Netflix that's right which yeah. if anybody's listening to this and hasn't seen it like I urge you to go and check it out because again I think it's one of the greatest openings to a show ever uh, in terms of the performance and the build up it's an absolute masterclass in how to open a festival set and get everybody on side excited it starts with these dancers out on the uh, runway out in the audience who make their way onto the stage. There's a pyramid of musicians. There's the, uh, the intro to Crazy in Love starts playing sort of New Orleans-style brass band, you know, doing the opening bars. And then Beyonce arrives at the top of this pyramid on a pneumatic platform and, like, pops out. And you can just feel the fact that everybody's been waiting for 
weeks, days, hours for this moment for Beyonce to arrive on stage and she pops out and it's crazy in love and it's those first 20 seconds yeah. of that song and the hairs on the back of your neck just go up and you just think, fair play, this goes down in history as one of the great songs. So before we, we, we move on to the, 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 the next track, um, as, a, as somebody that has, has reviewed music for, for many kind of publications and, and, and we'll get on to your work with the NME and stuff, um, you must, uh, I, I guess, looking at your, t- your timeline that, that you sent me of, of the work that you've done, I'm just sort of imagining this was possibly just pre-MP3 and you might have got the last thing when bands were probably not sending you demo tapes, but I imagine CDs mm. at that point. And um, was, you, was you getting bundles of music sent through to, to, to when you was at both Loud and Quiet and The Enemy? Loud and Quiet, we still get sent a fair bit of music, people sending us stuff on CD and vinyl. Um, most of the time we're getting sent streams these days, obviously. Mm-hmm. When I first started writing, yeah, I mean, we're, this is like the first job I had in an office where I'd get sent post to review music was around 2006, 2007. And you would get bundles of mail. Like uh, when my, my beginnings were in, in music journalism, were do, was doing a lot of work experience, particularly at NME. I did a bunch of stints when I was in my as a young teenager. One of the jobs that they would get you to do is to, to sort all of the mail. So you got in there in the morning and you sort all of the mail out of all of the writers, everybody that worked on the team. And there used to just be stacks of it. It'd take you an hour every morning just to go through and put these piles together, everybody's CDs. If you were the reviews editor on NME or the features editor or something like that, then you were just getting this massive stack of posts every day. And there would be huge fights over the control of the stereo of like what's going to go on next. Yeah. You know, it would all work like that. A little bit different these days in terms of the places I've gone on to work where I feel like because physical music culture has changed, we're all kind of experiencing music possibly a little bit less communally and more individually with our headphones yeah. on when we're sat at the computer or whatever. So a little bit different to that now, a lot less post, but certainly, yeah, we were still getting loads of CDs at that point, which was, you know, in the, fir- in the middle of the first decade of the 2000s. Was people sending their CDs in unique ways because I, I, I remember I, I used to send our bands demos like this is this is kind of mid 90s in like huge cardboard boxes with fragile tape all over it and it was literally just full of like padded out with whatever we could find and just one CD in the middle of it just to get the attention of, of whoever was opening it and like yeah, was, yeah. was that still happening that that was still happening and it does still happen now um I I always definitely feel the urge to listen something, to give something a bit more. Because if I can see time and effort's gone into something, then you, you, you certainly feel more obliged to make sure that you give something like a thorough listen. Um, had loads of quite inventive stuff over the years. People sending like sweets and like stuff like that, like anything they can kind of get into a traditional sort of bubble wrap package yeah. postal bag. Um, but then I remember one band. This will mean something to. a not many people. There was a band called Cocky Dwar, who were a London DIY band. I think one of the band members was of sort of like Polish origin. They played, it must have been a good 10 years ago now. I remember various people on Radio 1 championing that band, people like Hugh Stevens. And they would put on quite very, very DIY nights. They'd, you know, decorate venues and stuff. They took a lot of care and attention in the aesthetic of what they did. And for, for some reason, I remember when they sent me a package, 
everything from the, the actual package that it, it, it arrived in to the design of everything to all the multi-layers and the accompanying things that came with just this like five-track demo just immediately you know really made me get into that band and give me a sort of gateway into their world not just the music that it sounded like but the things that they appreciated and the style and the just the, the, the care and attention that went into yeah. it and I went I went and saw them like two weeks later and, and, and genuinely loved the band and followed them for a few years I don't think they're making music anymore but it was great and so I guess what my, my initial question was leading towards was so in regards to an intro if you have an influx of of say 30 CDs to get through or 30 streams, whatever format they're coming through in there. What is it you're looking for in an intro in, in, in modern day in there? Such a difficult question. We've got, so day to day, there's a couple of us in the office at Loud and Quiet and we get sent a lot of music, probably a hundred at least, maybe more things every day. We were actually very dedicated to trying to listen to everything. Um, that's a mixture of ways of doing it now. Um, we have, like, you know, where they just create folders in your inbox, and then you know we kind of portion off time to make sure that we're listening to everything. And we've also got like an old stereo in the office, so we're still listening to all the CDs and cassettes, or whether there's vinyl sent through or whatever. It doesn't, you know, whatever format it arrives on. Um, intros is a difficult one because you're. you're you feel the urge to say that it has to be something that grabs your attention yeah. instantly, but that, I don't think that's necessarily fair, is it? Because no, if you think of like, if you think of the, uh, you know, for example, contemporary classical and ambient music has had a real moment the last few years, and that's music that really only rewards after a lot of repeat listens. Yeah, can, you know, potentially you put it on and you might think, well, I'm not sure this is going anywhere. Mm. The actual beauty of that music is that you spend time with it. Um, I think it's this almost indefinable thing uh, of saying what, you know, if the question is, does something have to have an amazing introduction to grab your attention and therefore then get your support? Not necessarily, I wouldn't say, because yeah. I think we, I mean, we, we write about absolutely yeah. every different genre that's out there. It was there. a hard question, mate. Yeah, I, I can't pin is. you on it's got to be this explosive, <laughs> instantaneous, yeah, like, but not, I can't not at all. I can't deny that I'm not, like, a sucker for a crazy and left Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's bombastic. Absolutely. All right, Greg, well, for track two, um, I'm going to ask you what the, fo uh, the first song was that you remember hearing that had an emotional impact on you. Mm. This one was um, kind of quite hard to pinpoint, I think, because in terms of, like, formative music taste... It, my story is quite traditional in the sense that a lot of my early music listening introductions came through my parents their record collections the stuff they were listening to the stuff that I remember being on in like the car or the living room was Queen and U2 Pink Floyd my dad's quite a big fan of like heavier music so he loves Metallica Black Sabbath Hawkwind they they were like keen gig goers as well so he saw David Bowie playing like a small theatre in Malvern once and things like that. What well, did um, take you? I know, it didn't take me. I wasn't right. around at that point, yeah. unfortunately. I, I have seen the gig. They've still got the gig ticket stub, though, that says, like, £4 on yeah. it or whatever, which is amazing. They should keep hold of that. Um, so I was trying to think about, like, what was the first time where I sort of had a moment with music that then went on to inform my passion for it? So I chose Led Zeppelin's Stairway to Heaven because I guess... 
I kind of remember going through my mum and dad's CD collection and just kind of giving stuff a go. But for whatever reason, and I don't really know why this is stuck in my moment, I don't really know why this is stuck in my head, but I can think back of just being in my room, putting this Led Zeppelin CD into my battered Sony grey Walkman, having my headphones on, and that was the first time I really connected with what the possibility of music could be in the sense that like Stairway to Heaven is kind of a weird song and it goes if you, if you think of a song like Bohemian Rhapsody as well which structurally is quite unusual goes in all these different directions I think, neither of which would get on the radio in this day and age exactly I think Stairway to Heaven possibly similar because I think it just sort of opened my eyes to the possibility that music felt limitless and sort of you didn't need to sort of um there was no convention, really. Um, and I also just like the bombastic nature of rock music. That was yeah. what, where I traced my, my um, roots in that back to. But I must admit, like, even I think back to that moment as being really formative. Um, but also, I can't say that it then opened a door into being obsessed with Led Zeppelin or mm-hmm. classic rock or even stirring an urge to go back and find out more about that in general. I just accepted it for what it was and kind sure. of moved on. I, I only really wanted to then investigate music that was current. That's kind of been a theme throughout, really. Even now, it's it's rare for me to go back and dip into, you know, the classics, if yeah. you like. I know a lot of people that do do that regularly. They'll, yeah. you know, they'll go back and they listen to their favourite album at least, like, once a week or once yeah. a month or stuff. I wouldn't, I don't tend to do that. You haven't got that? Not really. I, I mean, those, those albums and those records exist for me, mm. but I still, even though I've been doing this for kind of almost 15 years, I, the thing that still excites me the most is discovering something new. Sure. Um, I, I, I wouldn't, it's rare that I would go home. That's healthy, and, Greg. Yeah, 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 I hope so. I think that's why I'm still interested yeah. in it, basically. Um, it's rare that I'd go home and stick on the Smiths or Led Zeppelin or anything yeah. like that, even though I love it. Yeah. It's, I, I wouldn't rarely do it out of habit. Yeah. I've got my, like, my, when I say decorating albums, if my wife <laughs> listens to this, she's, I'm going to give people the impression that I'm always doing, doing jobs around house. I'm so not. But, you know, should I ever have to do some wallpapering or some painting, I've got my, my go-to classics, which <laughs> always get churned out. But apart from that, you know, I, I don't have that either, really. I, you know, there's, there's a couple that, if I've got the time and I just want something comforting that I know I'm not, I'm, you know, I'm going to love, mm. then I'll go to that. But I think generally I am taking advantage of, of technology now and, and, and being able to just explore at very little cost. There's just such an abundance of music that I feel yeah. like if I'm not there trying to find something new today yeah. like, I, I know that I like this other thing do yeah. you know what I mean it's there mm. it's almost like that, the comfort of knowing that yeah. you can reach for that record anytime and you know that you like it but I'm, I'm not re-listening to it for the 60th time every other yeah. week I'm, 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 I feel the compulsion to try and find something new basically yeah how old would you have been when you, you first heard Stay Away um Ten. Okay. Do you want me asking how old you are? Yeah, yeah I'm 34. Okay. Okay. So yeah, I reckon. Yeah, it's probably about. Yeah, it's probably about yeah nine or ten years old. Okay. So uh, aside from the, the stuff that your parents were playing, they're more kind of traditional rock and 
you know, stuff like you two as well. Um, but we should also sort of being exposed to pop music. Yeah, yeah, um, definitely. Uh, I mean, I guess more through what the roots would have been at that time were things like music TV. Mm-hmm. I suppose Top of the Pops. Mm-hmm. We used to watch that pretty religiously. Live and Kicking, yeah, Saturday morning TV, stuff like that. We, we, you know, there, a bit of music appeared on that CD UK a bit later on, I suppose. Um, this is still like you know early days. Yeah. Um, and pop music. I don't think the, certainly pop music wasn't really coming from other places. It wasn't like I was listening to the radio an awful lot. Yeah. Or like my, I've got one brother. He was never really hugely into pop music. My folks were never really into pop music. Wouldn't even necessarily say school friends and stuff were but I was I was aware of it I suppose the big artists when I was very young would have been Spice Girls yeah um, Backstreet Boys yeah I think one of the I mean we'll come on to talk about this like in terms of like one of the first things that are you know one of the first you know singles that I bought or albums that I bought I remember I distinctly remember get given uh, PJ and Duncan's Let's Get Ready to Rumble, <laughs> which came out when I was nine. So I know that was there or thereabouts. Yeah. Stuff like that. Yeah. I don't think you really get artists like that anymore. Like yeah. they, they, they because everything's a little bit more exposed, you know, they, they were sort of like ready made for like pop stardom, like S Club Seven and things like yeah. that came along later. You don't really get so many artists like that. Well I guess days, the, the 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 marketing format that's tried and tested now is mm. reality television shows mm. now, isn't it? I suppose with X Factor and things like that. Mm. It's there's your eight week marketing schedule of just exposing these people every mm. single week and then at the end of it there's your ready made pop star because the public have chosen it. I guess yeah. you know, the, the the you know, seeing people from I guess back then from soaps you know, from Australian soaps and 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 and, and like you say, PJ and Duncan, and, and, and again, it was just that familiarity of mm. these people that you already liked watching. It was mm. it was a no brainer to then put them in a studio and and give them infectious pop records to sing, and then yeah. bingo. I think authenticity is really valued now as well. Like people feel like they need to know more about where the music's coming from. And yeah. then- There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss plushcare.com slash weight loss wow nice yeah what you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on bomba socks underwear and t-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds yeah that plush and the best part for every item you purchase bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am, but Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. 
individual or individuals behind it. And you're right, with social media, we do, we just know so much more about yeah. our people in, you know, the public domain, don't we? Yeah. So, yeah. The, the, I don't like it. You don't like it? No. <laughs> Where's privacy gone, Stu? You know, exactly. <laughs> I, I, I mean, I'm, I'm no massive U2 fan, but I like the fact that no one knows what Bono's wife looks like. Mm. I think that's quite clever, mm. you know, in this day and age. And, and I, you know, I, I guess I like... You know, I was a Morris obsessive, and and I love the fact that I knew nothing about him. And now, now he's got a voice. Fucking hell! Mm. <laughs> I don't want him to say anything anymore. Mm-hmm. He's saying dumb shit now. Yeah. But you know, I, I like that. I liked, you know, Michael Stubb. I liked them kind of pop stars that were elusive, and you know, you didn't know what they were about. It just made the the pictures in your head so much more exciting. And and now I don't want to know what Michael Stubb had for dinner. Mm. You know, it's like. I do think there's, 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 there's something lost there. And, there, you know, it swings and roundabouts. I'm, I'm, I'm in dangerous territory of sounding like a right old bastard here. <laughs> so I don't really want to go there. Um, all right, so while we're talking about those, those formative years, um, what is the song that reminds you of your time at school? Time at school. So, again, this was a challenge to pull this out because I feel like in the time from, say, going to secondary school and then the time leaving school after A-levels... Like my music chain, my music taste changed quite considerably yeah. and discovered so much stuff. Um, the track that I chose for this was Green Day's "Good Riddance, Time of Your Life," but I could have, I could have chosen thirty songs for this one. You can chuck a couple of honourable mentions in. Yeah. Okay. Well, other artists that I would mention that were, you know, influential for me at that point would have been bands like The Offspring, mm-hmm. um, Pennywise, um, a lot of like US. What would have been considered like skater punk, yeah. you know, AFI. Later on, things like Jimmy Eat World. I loved all that. I love Jimmy Eat World. Yeah, they're a great band. <laughs> Played last year. Right, right. Okay, yeah. cool. I mean, yeah, I mean, it's nice to see they're still making albums. Um, Green Day. I don't know. I think they were cause, just because they were really early on for me. I remember at that point, you know, you just mentioned the the channels that we relied on to get our information about music. Those places where we discovered new stuff. At this point, so if I was in the middle of secondary school, kind of 13, 14, finished school, you know, on a Wednesday, walk into town, buy Kerrang! magazine, buy Enemy, buy Melody Maker. Oh, you was buying all three? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Good work. Well, I started with Kerrang! magazine. That was more where my tastes yeah. were. And that, that sort of changed, probably did that for a couple of years and then was fell deeply for Enemy and Melody Maker. But so it would have been short-lived Melody Maker at that yeah, time, yeah, I imagine. Went, yeah, exactly. It went because, uh, that's right, Melody Maker got bought by the company that owned Enemy at that point and then they closed it down. Yeah. Because um, that was the big rivalry, wasn't it? Um, I loved the rivalry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, they competed with each other for... It, it was possibly healthy from like a writer's perspective, some great writing in there. Um, you know, they they always be on the new bands first. It's mm. like any form of competitive yeah. you know, competition. They're just trying to beat one another, aren't and, they? And it so. was that there were so many. In, in, you know, talking mid nineties, there were so many bands that that were melody maker bands, mm. and then the enemy would hate on them, <laughs> and and vice versa. And it was like who got there first, or who got to kind of champion them, mm. and then the others would just would, would rain on their parade. It yeah, was, yeah. Uh, it, you know. It was, it's healthy and fun, you know. But yeah. um, so, when you was at school, mm-hmm. was you already was writing something that that you was already doing? So I say doing, enjoying. 
Yeah, I suppose on a basic level, the stuff that I was competent at and that I enjoyed most was things like English literature, and therefore that's where I, I liked, um, where my like of writing came from. You know, I was reading quite a bit. But it wasn't until that I was buying those magazines that I realised that that was a thing that you could do. You know, you could legitimately call yourself a, a music journalist. My beginnings in that came when I was probably about 14-ish. Um, my brother had won a competition in Kerrang! magazine to be a roadie for the day with a band called Incubus, a big American rock band at the time. Uh, Huge! Yeah, yeah, and they were playing at Wembley Arena, so he went, he didn't take me for a start, which I've never forgiven him for. Uh, he took his girlfriend at the time, and then I went along in the evening, I had a ticket for the show anyway. I would not be introducing my girlfriend to Brandon from Incubus. <laughs> he is a exactly. very handsome man. <laughs> indeed, indeed. Yeah, he was definitely like a big heart top at that point. Um, anyway, he was escorted there by a Kerrang! journalist, and um, I got to meet the journalist later on, um, uh, a journalist called Ray Alexandra, and she, I basically said, can I get your email address? And that night I decided I was going to write a review of this, this show, this Incubus show. A couple of days later, I sent it to Ray and said, hey, this is probably rubbish, but I've written a review of the show we went to the other night. Would you mind having a look at it? And it, and it probably was awful, but the very fact that she even acknowledged the email and wrote back to me and said, like, this is, you know, there's work to be done, but, like, don't give up kind of thing, was the only encouragement that I needed to go, like, okay, this is what I want to do now. Yeah. And I was quite very focused from that point of just being like, okay, I need to go and do that now. And so then went and did loads of work experience and stuff like that. Um, and that's, that's how it all started, basically. Was it encouraged at school? Not real. Yeah, I guess there was a couple of teachers that were aware that I was doing it. Because I was doing work experience in like half term and summer holidays and stuff. A couple of them knew. Um, generally speaking, it wasn't really, I didn't feel like that was a, I don't know, I can't remember the careers advisor saying, like, yeah, definitely follow, like, music yeah. journalism, for example. I just went off and did it. And I kind of knew early on, like, when I left school, got offered some work from NME, so I'd have been 18. And I remember being in a real quandary because I'd accepted, I went into Cardiff University to do journalism. And I just remember being like, whoa, what should I do? Like, should I go and study more? Like, I feel like I need to do that. Or should I just take this? It was a limited amount of work at NME with, you know, I didn't know if it was going to go anywhere. Yeah. So I ended up studying and just knowing that, you know, I needed to improve and kind of hopefully keep that relationship with NME. And that's what happened in the end. But there certainly was a moment where I was like, have I burnt all my bridges yeah. by saying no to this and sort of following what my head was saying? Um, so was you avidly at Club Ivor back every weekend yeah, reviewing absolutely. bands? Yeah, 100%. <laughs> so my first, the first thing I ever had, my first byline in NME was a review of The Cribs at Cardiff Barfly uh, in, I'm going to say, February 2004. Um, I, I'd kind of shot myself in the foot a little bit because when I got to Cardiff, I thought, well, I can make an opportunity here. Not many people are going to be in Cardiff writing about, you know, music. I can be a, be a kind of regional, used to call them stringers, where you could, you know, if you were in a city that wasn't London, you could like, kind of report back and tell them mm. what was going on. Um, but in front of me, in, in front of me in the queue in Cardiff, was a writer called Noel Gardner, who's still writing, and a writer called Louis Patterson, who's still writing. Both were arguably two of my favourite writers, and were far, far, far beyond, still are anything that I've ever written. So I kind of, my opportunities were pretty limited. I think. 
the day that I managed to get something in print, like both of them had food poisoning or something. So I just was like the classic sub off the bench and yeah. jumped in. Wonderful. Um, so that's where the first break came, basically. Hello. I've interrupted the podcast again, haven't I? Sorry, it won't take a sec. All I want to say is the songs that we're talking about in this podcast, if we can't play them, it's just because of the regulations regarding playing licensed music and such. So if you want to hear the songs, just go over to Spotify and search Off The Beat and Track Podcast and you can listen to all the songs because I've put playlists up for each of these. If you can't find it on there, I'll send links on all the social media accompanying each episode. So you've just got to press that one button and you can go through and you can enjoy all the songs that our guest picks. Anyway, I'll shut up, get back to the podcast. See you on the other side. Okay. Um, so let, let, let's just keep it back when, when in, your, in your sort of formative years. So the first record you remember buying? So the first thing that I remember going into the shop, handing over my pocket money and taking out of the shop, this is the first one I remember, whether it was this or not, was Coolio's Gangster's Paradise. Yeah. Which I think was 1995. So again, I'd have been about 10 years old. And I think I'd heard it on Top of the Pops. I think the song was already number one by that mm. point. And well, it got big exposure because it was from Dangerous Minds, the film, wasn't it? Yeah. But I, as a 10-year-old, I'd abs- um, no, I effectively knew none of the context mm. around why that song was big at that point. I wasn't engaged with that side of it at all. All I knew was just like the groove, like just the, the, the groove, the lyrics, everything just felt fresh to my ears at that point. Mm. I was like, I love this. Don't know what it is. Mm. Like now, all these years later, I, I you know consider it would have been my first kind of introductory steps into rap music and sure. and like that style of like lyricism and delivery and the freshness of the beat and everything at that point. But at the time, I just knew I was just like, this song sounds absolutely nothing like. Spice Girls or whatever was number yeah. one last week. I just knew that it sounded different. It's, it's quite a dark sounding record, isn't it? Yeah, and it's it's funny like pop history, more well, I say like popular music history. It's just littered with these songs sometimes that just pop up and are big hits, and you, you look back now and you go, "That's an un- that's unusual that that got so much pickup at yeah. the time." Um, and yeah, like I mean, mentioned that band, The Offspring, earlier. Like they, they, The Offspring had a number one hit, like with "Pretty Fly for a White yeah. Guy." Like bizarre, really. It just kind of came from left field, that popularity. Yeah. And um, yeah, that's that's the great thing, isn't it? You look back, and there's this like history is littered with these these yeah. songs that almost seem like kind of bizarre hits now. So was it a CD single? It was a CD single. Yeah, okay. yeah. And um, I went through a stage. They they were still a big deal at that point, like buying singles. Um, it would have been in, I think it would have been Woolworths. Maybe it was our price. Maybe Andy's Records. Yeah. HMV, something like that. I used to love all those stores. Yeah. Like, I mean, that, I, you know, later on, tried and failed to get jobs in my local record yeah. store. Where was local? Where, where was you born? Welling Garden City. Okay. Um, so I was, well, I was born in Hereford, um, and then my family moved from Hereford when I was about 10 years old. Um, moved to Welling Garden City in Hertfordshire. Um, so that was... That was local, yeah. And there wasn't, musically, it was it was good and bad because I'd say that Wellington City didn't have a lot going on at that point, certainly isn't known. It's not a culturally exciting place. Yeah. But it is 
25 minutes into London on the train. Yeah. So later on, when I did start really getting into my music and regularly going to gigs, I was in London all the time. Yeah. And then when I wasn't in London, I was heading to places like the Horn in St Albans and going to the Square in Harlow. Um, there's a there's a venue in um, Hitchin called... I can't remember what it's called. No, it's still... Oh, Club 85, it's still yeah. going. It's occasionally bands going there and like touring bands. Those are the places, that, the smaller venues that were local that yeah. we could drive to. But otherwise, it was in and out of London going to places like the Astoria and Brixton Academy. Those yeah. were the venues that, you know, I was there every other week. So, uh, so as a young oik attending these shows, you know, weekly, and uh, how important were were record shops and were they you know were they places where you know you would find you bump into sort of like-minded individuals or you know uh, it's just I'm, I'm interested because you're of an age where i guess a lot of things are sort of changing mm. um and it, just historically on this podcast you know people that are maybe older than you mm. would have gone there and, and and avidly sort of bought vinyl and 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 i guess people that were younger than you was the kind of more of the sort of Lime wire generation and, yeah. and so on. So you're kind of in that sort of middle ground, really. So it all happened so rapidly. I guess I've got one foot in both worlds. When I was first buying music, so when I'm 15, 16, 17, and I'm like any money, you know, my pocket money or then part time work, I've worked at, um, worked in retail in Wellington City. All my money went on music, go, either going to see music or buying music. Those shops were still important. The R Price, Virgin Megastore and Oxford Street I used to go to, the big HMV, places like that. The, the traditional, like, independently run record store wasn't really a thing for me at that point. Yeah. And I suppose any nostalgia I've got around that would actually come a little bit later when I was living in Cardiff. Um, and I've got Spiller's Records in Cardiff, which is an amazing independently run record store. Um, that I used to spend loads of time in when I was there. And my appreciation for that kind of culture came later. Yeah. But already, you know, I'm 18 years old and Napster's already a huge deal. Yeah. Like, I didn't, I didn't use Napster at all, really. It wasn't really my thing. I still bought a lot of stuff, mm -hmm. CDs. It was predominantly CDs, really. Um, but my friends were consuming music just on yeah. Napster and like and so I was at that age you know that kind of pivotal 18 years old where consumer habits just just changed yeah. forever and when kind of never going back people had the opportunity to listen to any piece of recorded music ever yeah. and it's like once the genie was out of that bottle like you knew the culture was going to change um so yeah I mean I enjoyed going to those record stores but um yeah it was the more traditional kind of high street places that I had access to well, whilst talking about your your you being eighteen years of age, just, I guess that then leads us on nicely to track five, which is uh, the song that soundtracked your years in Clubland. Mm. Clubland makes me think of it being like sweaty indie disco. That's yeah, what I'm saying. Exactly. Okay, that's cool because that's what I did. So I'm quite um, I've certainly growing up had very much like a baby face. So like my going out as a teenager, you do not look your age. That, right, that's okay. why I asked you. Right, right. So when I was 17, 16, 17, 18, like I def definitely didn't live that teenage existence of being able to go to like nightclubs. Uh, I just couldn't get in. Like I literally like people would be like, laugh me out. You yeah. Know, produce my fake ID and they'd just be like, no, no way. Yeah. Um, so 
I actually didn't really, I couldn't really get into anywhere until I was of age, really. Yeah. Um, and like I say, well, I turned 18, almost <clears throat> immediately went to Cardiff for university. That's where my love of like the traditional indie disco would come from. Um, the song that makes me immediately think of that time is The Rap by The Walkman, which I still absolutely love. Um, I got married about four years ago and we had a band playing and pretty much like the first song we asked them to, to learn to play that night, me and my wife, was The Rap because we just adore it still. Anytime it comes on when we're out, it just has us kind of like screaming in each other's faces. It's just so visceral, an amazing, amazing song. Um, and it reminds me of those times getting into Cardiff, frequenting the places you already mentioned, Club Eiffel Bach, amazing venue in Cardiff, still going. Love to see the fact that it's still going, in fact. And um, the Barfly music chain was still a big yep. deal at that point. They were all over the country. Cardiff had one. Most nights of the week, they, had, they were booking big bands. The, the bands that were playing in that venue at that point that were packing it out, the killers, hard fight. You know, this is a couple of years before people like Kaiser Chiefs turned mm -hmm. up and stuff like that. It was really, really thriving. Um, unfortunately, the barfly chain went under. It doesn't exist anymore. But certainly, like, a preferred Thursday, Friday, Saturday night out was definitely in one of those places. Um, and that song takes me right back to that point. Um, so, yeah, I, I still absolutely love it now. It's just... We, you know, we talked earlier about great intros, like the drum, oh. I, I'm, a, I'm a drummer, play myself, and the drumming on the rat is just incredible, the production on the drums as well, Hamilton's vocal is so, almost kind of like blood curdling, um, I, I, still, I still love that band, I particularly love that track, I feel like um, the Walkman were kind of, history doesn't necessarily remember the Walkman as fondly as that other bands that were around them at the time in New York, but um, I still think it stands up as amazing. I, I first heard that voice, a tiny little venue in, in Chelmsford in Essex mm -hmm. called The Wire Club. Many years before that, I saw a band called Jonathan Fire Eater. Yeah, yeah, okay. And, uh, and I was like, this guy sounds weird. Mm. And thought nothing more of him, and then... I was watching MTV and I saw, I just watched the drummer. Mm. I just, as soon as like, it's, it's an in, incredible intro. And then when them drums go, it, it, it's, it's just different level. And, and then when the vocal comes in, it, it's for me as a, as an indie DJ of nearly 30 years now, <laughs> um, that never leaves a record box. Mm. It's it's incredible. It's incendiary. Like it, it, yeah. And 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 some of the stuff he's done since as well. Uh, Hamilton's incredible. Um, I, I've got to be honest. When when I got after the rat, I went straight out and got the album and was disappointed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Nothing else sounded like the rat. Let's be honest. Like the rat is the best thing the woman ever wrote. Yeah. Um, and then you had. Have you have you read Lizzie Goodman's book Meet Me in the Bathroom? This is about, I haven't read it, this so, is the era of, of New York, so yeah, it's just so bonbondies and it, it, all so of that. this is basically, anybody that has a connection or a like of, effectively, the explosion of the strokes and what that gave way to, so, you know, the yeah, yeahs and TV on the radio, eventually, you know, the Brooklyn artist, like, Animal Collective. So we're just into the 2000s because, uh, you know, the strokes broke in, like, it was 2000, basically, yeah. wasn't it? Um, this book is amazing. It's effectively an oral history of that time in New York. Lizzie Goodman's gone back and done interviews with all the artists, including Jonathan Fierier, who was certainly considered kind of purveyors mm -hmm. of a lot of that scene because they arrived and were a little bit 
different and, and, and created a following and a groundswell which got a bit of momentum which showed the strokes that, that they could do something and you know then the strokes obviously just that exploded yeah. um, and New York was certainly musically culturally the place to be for 100% yeah for for a long time after that that book is absolutely essential if that if if you only got any kind of connection with um with that type of music and they've also just done a exhibition i think in new york based on the book and you know pulled out like the old toilet cubicles from like some of the old dive bar venues in in Brooklyn in New York and it's, they're on display and these pieces of like cultural history which now makes me feel old because that was the first thing that yeah. I really got into and now I realise that it's kind of like 20 year old mem- memorabilia um, but the Walkman amazing band part of an amazing movement still probably the big thing for me what did you want from clubbing? clubbing um, we just went out and just had a good time. I mean, we never really went... Like, when I think of the word clubbing, I just think automatically think of, like, fabric or something like no, that. No, no. Indie and clubs are clubs. Yeah, okay, fair enough. We're on those terms. Because I, I never did the other thing. Yeah. Not, not really. Like, I've been to fabric a couple of times. And mm-hmm. I do... I love club music. I love electronic music. Like, some of my f- favourite records of the last few years, like, I'm a huge fan of, like, Floating Points and John Hopkins and that sort of mutation on techno and ambient music that's come about. I absolutely love it. But I didn't spend any time in the clubs because my friends weren't really that way inclined. Um, and we were just all about the indie disco. And mm. it was it was just a release. Like, those are the people that I bonded with at university. You know, we, if we went out, we went out to an indie disco. Like, in the first few weeks of, like, meeting new friends and stuff there, we did go to like the commercial clubs yeah. at the time. So like your liquids and like your, yeah. your chain clubs. Of course. I just found, I just, everything about that experience just didn't fit with me. Um, I would just as sooner have gone to the barfly where there was like 10 other people on the dance floor, which sometimes there was, and, and just had a good night out. It was because I just connected with the music. Yeah. And, um, you know, my best friends now are still those people that I spent those nights with. You know, my, I already mentioned my wife. That's pretty much how I met her, going to those places. Like that's, that is the culture that's still in my yeah. heart. Um, and I still love it now. Like, any excuse to get back in an indie disco, it's yeah. just, yeah, it's still a great night out. You can come to mind any Friday, mate. Yeah, brilliant. <laughs> um, okay, so, uh, track six. Mm. A favourite song from an artist from your home county. Okay, so, I mean, I went with hometown for this, but, like, I chose the Subway's Rock and Roll Queen. Um, as I already mentioned, like, there was definitely a bit of a cultural dearth in the two places that I spent my early years, as in I was born in Hereford. And my connection, I didn't really have any musical knowledge or passion by the time I left there when I was 10. Even though Hereford does have a bit of a musical legacy, bands like Mott the Hoople and others like that. Uh, like a lot of rock stars eventually go and move to like Herefordshire. Like I think, I think Robert Plant hangs out near there um, a lot of the time. Um, but when I got to Welling Garden, there wasn't there wasn't much going on in terms of a scene. Like I remember having a meet up with some people that I guess I must have met on like MySpace or something like that because we decided we were going to write like a music magazine about Welling Garden and like the surrounding area and the bands and stuff. And we met in a pub garden because couldn't get into the pub. Uh, I was about fourteen or something, and um, we had one meeting and realised there wasn't enough to write about, <laughs> so we just didn't. Um, but 
as, as I got a little bit older, the subways arrived. Um, that new rock revolution, or whatever you want to call it, that we already just discussed there, where New York kind of lit, you know, New York lit the touch paper for so many British bands mm. that then just ignited. I feel like the subways were one of those that really joined into the wave of music that was happening a little bit later on. So things like the Vines and the Killers and things like that had arrived, and the subways felt like they caught a bit of a zeitgeisty moment, and they were local, and so that got people really excited. Saw them a few times at the square, yeah. Did you? Okay. No, yeah. you. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. Um, they, 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 yeah, they did. They played regularly. There's a, a pub in Welling called the Doctor's Tonic, and they used to put shows on like in the in the attic of the pub, basically. Yeah. Um, and I also worked. I think it was, I worked in Next in like the stockroom and on the shop floor sometimes. And like we'd we'd regularly have people coming and doing like you know seasonal work at Christmas time or whatever. I think Billy might have worked there at the same time as I worked there. So we've probably served some people some you know some suit trousers at yeah. some point at the same point um but it felt good to have a band that were local that you could kind of champion and get on side with yeah um and that's a great song as well like you know Fantastic it felt record. like a kind of indie anthem it took them all the way to the main stage at Reading festival it blew up quite quickly for them and i think that definitely felt like a point of local pride and the local Welling Garden, Hatfield Times newspaper started writing about them and stuff like that. And he's one of the nicest people you're ever likely to meet. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, and I think, again, it just, regardless of a lot of these bands sounded different to the subways, but a little bit later on, talking about Hertfordshire in general, you had bands like Friendly Fires that were based in St Albans and then very different gallows came out of Watford and stuff like that. There, was, there were things happening. Where were in the Shikari from? Yeah, they're St Albans as well, I think. Yeah, yeah. yeah. They, I remember going to see um, Shikari play the St Albans Arena when they first arrived. And it, I think it's good. I love seeing music... Mo uh, I love seeing music movements happen in places that don't... that get starved of that stuff otherwise. Yeah. And it's not, there's no greater thing than yeah. something starting in, in a place. Um, so, yeah, that was great. And um, the subways were... First record to be released on Transgressive, I believe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Am I right? I'm sure I am. I think I think you are. Yeah, and uh, I mean Transgressive. I know you've had Tim on the on the podcast here before. What an amazing label! They my beginnings in music. I think most music journalists will kind of earmark one artist or band who they've written about the whole way along that were kind of there at the beginning, and you sort of feel like you're there, your band. And my one on that front is Foles. When I first started working at NME. They were, I, I'd, I'd been, I went to see them in Hartford. They played a, a venue in Hartford, a tiny place. Not really anybody there. They'd only, been, they'd only done a few gigs. And I just remember coming away from that show just thinking, that I, you know, this is my band forever kind of thing. Yeah. And even now, I'm still kind of you know, writing and broadcasting about them a lot. But Transgressive, as a record label, have actually arguably gone on to release you know, some of my favourite bands of all time. Um, yeah. And great, and running an amazing spirit, independent. It's not... Not easy to run an independent label, publication, anything really, where you're kind of like, you know, you don't know what's happening, going to happen around the corner. So the fact that those guys are still going like 15 years later and releasing amazing albums is just a testament to how Absolutely. dedicated and passionate they are. Absolutely. So you finish at, at, at Cardiff Uni mm -hmm. and then, was it Enemy then? Yeah, yeah. So whilst I'd been in Cardiff, I was doing a bit of writing for Enemy. I, I managed to go back and do a bit more work experience right at the end, 
got it was fortuitive because somebody was um, I got offered basically a bit of part time work at NME. It was only two days a week, but it was working on their gig gig guide, where it was effectively just inputting, going through all the listings of all the shows happening all around the country, which gave me a quite a good knowledge of like what venues and music movements were happening yeah. all over the UK because I was having to check all the websites and see what bands were playing, um, and so I was doing that for two days a week just. Uh, effectively data input but contributing to my favorite magazine and that was the you know the door was opened ajar at that point and so it meant that i could go and nag all of the commissioning editors the reviews editor features editor and stuff and just be like hey i want to write some more like here's yeah. something you know and just constantly on it to just try and open opportunities um eventually got a job as assistant reviews editor at enemy um so i was working across all their album reviews and live reviews and things like that and then, then I left Enemy and I went to work for the BBC for five years at Radio 1 at um, Newsbeat as their music reporter. So doing all of the original music journalism that went across Radio 1 and One Extra, working on the BBC website, um, trying to make music journalism, original music journalism that was interesting for an audience of like 18 to 24-year-olds, which was great because that, that role hadn't existed before I went there. Um, and so that was an amazing opportunity to learn to be a BBC journalist, um, but also still work with music and doing a lot of interviews. Challenging? Yeah, yeah, it was definitely hard. I hadn't really done any radio before I turned up there. I remember my boss at the time, I'd maybe been there six months, predominantly working online, which I thought was what the role was, which it kind of was originally. And then they were like, we want you to be like working across all disciplines, all platforms, so you're going to have to go on the radio. And I must admit, I was just a bit like, okay, well, I don't really know what I'm doing yeah. there, but I'm willing to learn. And um, so just just decided to, yeah, just absolutely give it a go and give it a shot. And mm, Did you later, enjoy it? Loved it. Absolutely amazing. Yeah, great opportunities. Some very surreal opportunities that came around from doing that because the artists that were in Radio 1, a lot of the time, I could then I'd be interviewing for different things. So it, it, the chance to meet some, like, fantastic artists at that period um do some great interviews go some amazing places um which was great and then I, my, then my journey took me back to nme where i was um editor of nme.com for almost three years um which was great because it felt like i'd been away learned a lot and then was bringing my skills back to a place that felt like home really and loved being back at nme and kind of really forging the vision of what their digital you know the digital side of nme looked like and was this at a time when, when perhaps NME was maybe embracing some, I guess, more sort of pop culture, like pop music than, than it probably it ever had at that point. I think so, yeah. I think NME had been doing that for a good few years by the time I'd yeah. gone back there. Um, and yeah, and I think that was a reflection on the stuff that we talked about earlier of being like when, when the culture of consumption changed, when you Massively. moved into like online streaming, the barriers around like genre, you know, any kind of traditional like um, notions of you know you're only into this type of music or that type of music, it just gone. And I just I mean, I, certainly people that are younger than me, a lot of them don't think in those terms. Perhaps my generation again is like I always think of us as the ones that have got one foot in one world and one in another. Because growing up, I was like a rock music fan, and perhaps I would have been a bit snooty about pop music or whatever. Yeah. But now, because I was part of that changing tide, I don't feel that way at all. But and people younger than I probably never did feel that way. Um, there doesn't seem to be tribalism in, in music genres no, anymore. Less so, uh, less so, yeah. Uh, 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 apart from maybe metal. 
Yeah, yeah, right. true. And that's still, I mean, that's still, I, do, I do think the culture around that is still really thriving. Um, but I think you're right, yeah. I think it's, it's complete, completely normal and acceptable to be as into your jazz as you are into psych metal or whatever yeah. you want to be. So. Okay, well, well, we'll talk about Loud and Quiet in a minute. Mm-hmm. Um, but for your final track, it's the song that many may not know that you would like them to hear. Yeah, a bit of a random one, this one. <laughs> it's a bit of a good one, though. Yeah, it's a great one. So the track I chose was At The Drive-In, Napoleon Solo, which is off an album of theirs called In Casino Out, which was the album they released before um, Relationship of Command, which I guess is considered their seminal record. So this isn't one that appears on that album. This is a track that's on the one before that that I just absolutely adored. Um, that band were a mega obsession for me. Um, they arrived in the perfect nick of time, I think it was 2001 where Relationship of Command came out. Again, to reference the, the podcast, you, had, you know, you had Tim from Transgressive on here before. I know that he had a similar kind of epiphany to that band and the connection with them and they meant a huge amount and considered them a gateway into loads of other, um, what felt at the time, like kind of very edgy, exotic, kind of American alt-punk stuff going on. Um, but this track in particular, I just absolutely love. I love all the kind I mean, of... you dressed it up really nicely there. Yeah. But I remember seeing them on... It was either TFI Friday yeah. or whatever it was. It was just batshit. Jules Holland, I think. Was probably. it Jules? Yeah. 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 This is the thing where they ended up, you know, pulling all the furniture out of the way. fucking and, chaos. It was yeah, incredible. Yeah, yeah. And, and yeah, <laughs> just... Yeah. I, I, I hadn't seen anything like that for a long time. Mm. It was just something that I just thought well, I'm on board with this mm-hmm. well this is the time before YouTube and I immediately went out and bought the VHS of that that series of Jules Holland just so I could have really three and a half minutes of that performance like in my archive still got it somewhere um, just incendiary I loved everything about that band they arrived like I said just in the kind of nick of time for me I guess I would have been 16 Relationship of Command came out it was produced by a guy called Ross Robinson who'd been doing loads of metal albums and the production on that album was immense i loved it from start to finish he was the go-to kind of new metal producer right. at that point wasn't absolutely, he absolutely yeah um but that that album led me into their earlier work on which napoleon solo appears and it was just the the, the album before that is it's a lot scrappier the, it sounds a lot roomier it, the production on it's completely different I, I think that the earlier stuff is more akin to sort of pavement and 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 more exactly. sort of the yeah. spirit of like Fugazi and those bands that were so like, much kind more of like stripped down stick, stick mics up in a room yeah. style production um, again there's very few bands that have stuck with me from those early days that I would kind of do that you know would take me to the other side of the world and back but at the driving actually are like a few years ago they reformed and played some shows they went they played Coachella and we we bought our plane ticket to California just to see that moment um, and like I said there's probably not many bands that would make me do that if they might even be the only one, but yeah. um, absolutely immense. The reason I recommend that track is because I know the relationship of command is known in certain circles, but like the stuff, the earlier stuff, like yeah. Napoleon Solo is just, just the most immense song um, that appears a little bit earlier than that. And they, they were the band that got me into, I can recognize parts of what at the, at the driving resemble, that kind of edginess, the slight chaos the message that's slightly abstract, the, 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 the incendiary live show, those are still the things that get me really excited about New Ice now. When I see those elements in somebody else now, 
when I recognise those, those are still the things that like push all my buttons basically. Yeah. So that's why that band still was really important. And that's why I chose that song. Wonderful. Loud and quiet. Mm. One, is it your baby? No, well, not my baby. So it was so loud and quiet started. So twenty. 2020 will be the 15th anniversary of Loud and Quiet. It started by a guy called Stuart Stubbs um, as a fanzine, printed on a home printer, stapled together, put together in his mother's spare bedroom in Southend. Uh, and it was a passion project. Like I, I met Stu in those early days. He was also doing work experience at NME. We were kind of two similar age, kind of like-minded people. Um, and he decided very early on that he was going to pursue his own thing started loud and quiet as a fanzine built it up himself it was a you know into what is you know what i think is the one the uk's most respected kind of authoritative independent music titles um so once i'd left enemy Stu gave me the opportunity to come to be with him to basically start all of the digital side of loud and quiet from scratch he'd built the magazine into you know he'd been doing it for over 10 years by that point um and so i came along to to do the digital side of stuff so that was like we we relaunched the website we started a network of podcasts we started doing live event stuff um all these kinds of things that he, he never had the time or the opportunity to do before and together over the last few years we've we've built loud and quiet and kind of taken it to places that we never really thought were possible um and it's great it's a whole different experience having worked for all manner of organizations from enemy to the bbc you know when you think of the, the, you know, they're big, big companies with different, with, with priorities and, and bosses and things like that. Loud and Quiet is still proudly independent 15 years in, which means that we kind of start every day with a blank piece of paper and we can do what we want, um, which is thoroughly rewarding when you get ideas yeah. right. Um, and it's been, it's been fantastic. Like, you know, the opportunity to champion, like Loud and Quiet is all about new emerging talent. And so, that's what we're known for and well that's what Stu's built the reputation around and so yeah it's an absolute joy to work on it every day it's 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 fantastic where can people find out about it loudandquiet.com uh, is the first place to go where you can find out about the magazine that we put out every month um, and there you'll also find everything else we do we have a podcast called Midnight Chats which is like an interview podcast where we sit down and talk to artists there's a series of that that's ongoing at the moment we've had people like who have we had on this series already? Um, by the time people hear this, um, Stephen Meltmus, Heim, um, who else? Like going back a while, like people like Mike Skinner and Johnny Marr and all manner of amazing people in music. Shirley Manson, that was one of my favourite episodes to record. Um, so yeah, do go and seek it out and have a listen. A little bit jealous you've had Johnny Marr. <laughs> Greg, thank you so much. Thanks for having me on. There you have it. Thank you ever so much for listening. Greg was an absolute gentleman. Really enjoyed having a chat with him, and I hope you had as much pleasure listening to that as I did from chatting to him. I'll be back next week. In the meantime, please go over to iTunes, like, subscribe, um, leave us a comment, and if you see us on the social medias, we're on all the platforms. Give us a like, a love, a retweet, and and all that jazz. Um, And, yeah, we have a Patreon page, so please head over to there as well if you want some more content, or just have a good rifle through the back catalogue that's available on Acast, iTunes, and Spotify. Have a lovely week, and I will see you next when will i see you next friday have a smashing week i'll see you soon bye bye oh yeah sorry i've butted in yet again i just want to quickly tell you about this magazine 
It's called Pod Bible. Now, Pod Bible is the new essential guide to podcasts. It's put together alongside Spotify and Acast, and it's a one-stop shop to tell you all about the podcasts you maybe know about, but definitely about a lot of the podcasts that you probably don't know about that we think you should know about. I mean, in the first edition, there's interviews with Adam Buxton, interviews with Craig Parkinson, and there's features on Jade Adams, and there's just an abundance of information about so many exciting podcasts that are out there. Also, Spotify have given us these amazing little codes, so if you do get a print copy, you can just turn on your Spotify on your phone, scan the little code, and it just automatically opens up the podcast on your listening device. How good's that? If you haven't managed to get a print copy, then just go over to www.podbiblemag.com and read it online because the digital version is all over there and it's all free. So every other month there'll be a new edition out. So go and have a look and support us on the social medias as well. Podbiblemag.com It's off the beat and track podcast on the Distraction Pieces Network. With me, Stu Whipping. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app. You can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.